Tuning in from New Mexico, this is B, and welcome to the Always Already podcast. John. I'm Rachel. And we're in New York. Um, I'm very jealous of B. I have a soft spot for the West, so I'm jealous that B is in the West. Yes, it is beautiful here in terms of weather and uh, being around family. I got to see my cute uh, little godson who's two years old. And if you're honored enough to be a friend of B on Facebook, you also got to see said cuteness. Yes, we were sharing sweet potato fries last night. Aww. Um, in addition to the cuteness that is B on Facebook in general. Aw, thank you. So, if there's some weird delays and some weird echoes, blame Skype, not us. Yes. Uh, it's strange that we're talking about embodiment today, given how virtually disembodied we are um, by technology. <laughs> Affect, uh, internet, cyberspace, keywords. I know. Well, so because I wanted to start off this conversation, actually. Well, let's talk. Say what we're what we're talking about first, right? Oh, so yes. We're, we're talking about the. Uh, a few are you chapters. disciplining me? I am. I, yes, you are. Oh. Look at you, John. Um, we're <laughs> talking about a couple of chapters from Living Alterities, Phenomenology, Race, and Embodiment, which is edited by Emily S. Lee. We're talking about the introduction by Lee. We're talking about race, gender, and the philosopher's body by Donna Dale L. Marcano. And we're talking about body movement and responsibility for a situation, um, also by Emily S. Lee. So we'll have a little a little intro to that, and then we're going to come back with these burning questions. For this week's podcast, we're reading Living Alterities, Phenomenology, Embodiment, and Race, which is a collection of essays edited by Emily Lee. And we were given this title as a suggestion from one of our listeners, so thank you again for um, those listeners who suggested this as a recommendation. For this episode specifically, we're reading Lee's introduction to the text, in which she explains the dearth of embodied approaches to race within philosophy at large, and lays the groundwork for the range of essays that follow in the book. And then we also read Donna Dale Marcano's Race, Gender, and the Philosopher's Body, and finally Lee's own essay, Body Movement and the Responsibility for a Situation. So one of the projects of the book, one of the main projects, is to discuss the lived, very corporeal, embodied experiences of race, rather than leaving race and the discussion of race, its ontology, its constructedness, to the realm of abstract universality, which is something that philosophies want to do with many things. And the text makes use of the work of Maurice Merleau-Ponty and of Frantz Fanon, among others, to illustrate how racial meaning systems and constructions and subjective experiences and legal and systemic factors that are often talked about with the construction of race all impact and are in turn impacted by the day-to-day corporeal, subjective, very bodily experiences of what it means um, to live race. And in her introduction, Lee discusses also the contributions that phenomenology specifically can make to talking about race as it, quote, aims to understand precisely the world as a relation between the natural and the cultural, the objective and the subjective. And she draws upon Merleau-Ponty's idea that phenomenology is a, quote, layer of living experience through which other people and things are first given to us. 
So that is the world and subjectivity constantly condition each other. And this framework helps us articulate the flaw in both a colorblind approach to race as well as a biological essentialist approach. Marcano's chapter argues for the need to tie the philosopher back to the body as well, um, and specifically as an area of inquiry that historically operates upon body, mind, emotional, rational duality, and focuses upon the transcendence of the body altogether, excluding particularly the experiences of black women and black women's intellectual work within the ambit of philosophy. And she argues that we must not only see race and its constructed particularity um, while also not understanding human experience through the lens only of universality. Um, and these ideas uh, problematize the notions of equality as traditionally conceived within a Western liberal philosophical tradition altogether. So finally, Lee's chapter on body movement calls our attention to Merleau-Ponty's idea of the body subject, which is the material body and consciousness as integrated. And she does this to illustrate how body movement, quote, generates phenomenological space and time, um, which she ties back to Merleau-Ponty's idea that the body is reflexive and always already <clears throat> intertwined with the world. The ways in which different bodies occupy space in different ways, and she uses Iris Marion Young's example of how girls do not take up the same depth of space as boys in particular situations, points not only to the limitations of our embodied subjectivities, but also the possibilities. And so she turns in the second half of the chapter to the, um, the possibility or the notion that one is truly free only when they accept responsibility for, quote, the entirety of one's situation. So that means taking responsibility for the histories of violence and colonialism and racial injustice that make up the way bodies move and create space and temporality and the way that bodily scripts are accepted as natural and should be therefore um, unmade. She concludes by bringing together Merleau-Ponty as well as the notion of responsibility and privilege brought to a fore in whiteness studies. Um, with the goal of urging us to think about creating different bodily movements altogether and creating new ways of space and temporality that don't privilege certain bodily scripts over others. So stay tuned for our discussion of these essays and explorations of their implications, and thanks for tuning in again. All right, B, go for it. <clears throat> okay, so uh, there, there are a couple of things from the intro, and I suppose what stuck out for me was a kind of uh, mistakenness uh, that Lee had for social construction um, and what she seemed to be uh, what, what people take for granted as being socially constructed and natural. And it seemed to me that she had this kind of slippage into how people uh, or how we might as philosophers, if not as lay, as lay folks, um, see the natural as being real and seeing the socially constructed as being not real. Hmm. And so my question was really here, you know, is she making the distinction of socially constructed thing as having less reality in its metaphysical capacities than anything um, so-called natural? Or for that matter, what is simply natural? And seeing that she was defying the very kind of project that it seemed that she was um, attempting to promote first on, which was a kind of uh, monism, right? So she's, she's distancing herself from a, kind of a metaphysical dualism. Yet when she gets into the social construction debate, it seems like she's setting to one side the idea that many people take for granted the, how very real something that is socially constructed is. That it has a place in, it has an ontological place. Um, and it's no less real than anything that we might say 
um, you know, is, is, a, you know, so-called naturally occurring. And I was really unconvinced by some of the critiques that she had brought into the fray against Butler's own, you know, um, as, you know, some of her essence of how, uh, so-called real things are, are discursively compelled into reality, right? Um, so I, I was a little unconvinced by that, and I wanted to get some of your takes on it. So just real quickly, on uh, the second page of the intro, I'm sorry, page five, the second photocopied page of the intro, Lisa is talking about um, the difficult task le left up to race theorists given some of the assumptions of philosophy as a whole, and she says... Uh, they have the difficult task of arguing that although there is no such thing as race in the natural sense, race still functions because of the meanings of race in the cultural sense. Philosophy is race, of race is left in the difficult position of arguing for the importance of meanings about something that cannot actually be distinguishable in nature. So I actually thought that sort of the idea that just because um, it's not natural or it's socially constructed, it's not less real because meaning is real. I thought that was sort of the closest she comes to the Butlerian mm -hmm. and um, that in that she, and in other places, she sort of tries to imply that meaning uh, is real. In, in other words, whatever constructed meaning has arisen about race is real, not in the naturalistic sense. doesn't make race real as some natural entity, but as something that has embodied lived um, effects and influences. I mean, that's interesting because I didn't read it like either of you two, I don't think. I think she's just trying to make kind of a polemical, somewhat polemical point and set the terms and perhaps oversimplify the terms of a debate. Um, yeah. More so than she's adopting a particular position about social constructionism itself. And, you know, if we look later on in the introduction, she talks about, you know, for her, it's the turn to phenomenology that, as she says, you know, this is me paraphrasing, she, that ontological, ontologizes, not ontologizes, that's not a word, <laughs> ontologizes the relationship between embodiment and race, between the cultural and the natural, between the subjective and the objective. So I think for her, it's somewhat a schematic that she then wants to argue that phenomenology enables us to think our way out of, and mm -hmm. that it's a schematic that says that as long as we're thinking about race solely in one of those two terms, we're not actually going to get it. We're not going to get there. Yeah. See, and that's the thing, I suppose, if, if she's using phenomenology to bridge these two things that I feel are artificial distinctions to say that these are dual or it's a dualistic metaphysics um, between nature and social constructionism, because for me, I believe embodiment is a process that is both. I mean, I'm, I'm I suppose I'm borrowing from Butler here is that, you know, this thing that we call the body is also um, is also a part of a constructedness that isn't necessarily different. Um, and, you know, and so it's not relegating consciousness. It's not, it's not in any way relegating consciousness, um, behind the body or putting the, or, or putting these two things in, in different categories, but indeed bringing them together in this monistic sense. And so I think maybe I agree with you, John, is that there's, a, there's an oversimplification of a, of a debate that's happening that almost turns into a kind of weird straw argument, um, as to why that leads us into, um, the the argument as to why phenomenology is going to somehow put agency back into the discussion about uh, about race and about well subjects that social constructionism and you know Butlerianism as it were has always had a problem with, um, but I don't know I just so I, I actually asked the question it was like 
uh, towards the end, I was like, does this trend or do, or do these threads of phenomenology take race and agency seriously enough um, to bridge, you know, to be a bridge between these two artifices? So, I don't know. I, so, John, do you have a comment that relates to that? Because I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent. Okay, then I'll, I, I'm actually not that concerned about that particular point. Um, I think that... Part of it also is just, I think it's part of it is two things. Part of it is the task of having to do an introduction to this kind of edited volume. And even if you just kind of look at the summaries of the different articles, actually is has a very wide array of sorts of things that the collection's doing. And yeah. secondly, and perhaps more importantly, I wonder if part of it is the situatedness of this particular text in philosophy, right? This is a, you know, a philosophy of race book. This is a book for, for, for philosophers. So I'm not sure, like, if philosophers are reading new materialism or if philosophers have read Butler in anything newer than the past, you know, since, I don't know, since Undoing Gender or something like that, where I think, you know, if we would say one of the main strands of feminist theory has over the past, I don't know, what, 10 years or something has been to, you know, think about ways to bring the material or materiality back in, right? Like maybe that hasn't necessarily transferred to philosophy writ large. So then positioning this text within a you know, philosophy discourse that is probably in general, speaking of philosophy, it's a whole skeptical of philosophy of race um, and some of the ways that the Marcana piece talks about really nicely, I think. Um, right. Then maybe there's a necessity to kind of schematize in the way that she does. I can see that. Yeah, that makes sense. So, Rachel, you had a point you wanted to go to. Yeah, so one thing that I thought, it's funny because I didn't think that I would necessarily ever think this, like ever sort of think, but what about too much embodiment? <laughs> I never thought that I'd sort of come from that perspective. But um, mm -hmm. when she talks about the idea, I mean, one of the premises for this book and in the introduction is um, that there's a lot of attention when looking at race and theories of race and racism to looking at um, social constructions and to looking at law and legality and also looking at institutions and empire and colonialism. And she's saying there's not enough focus to, through that on embodiment, which I think is totally great for the reasons that John just stated, particularly as a project within philosophy. Um, and yet I found myself writing in the margin and somewhere in the introduction, like that we also can't kind of go too far that way, which is actually maybe what Joanna was saying yesterday when we were talking about this, like go so far that way that we overlook some of the ways that um, the legal system, as one example, really constructs race. And just to concretize that, I've been thinking about um, this uh, this U.S. Supreme Court case, the People versus Hall, which um, I taught last week with my students. And so it's just been on my mind. And it was this court case in the 1850s, a Supreme Court case where a... Um, Chinese immigrant in California who'd immigrated because of the gold rush witnessed a white man killing, uh, murdering uh, somebody. And so, and there were three other people, that's three people total, three Chinese immigrants in California who had witnessed it. And they couldn't be witnesses in the case because at that time you could only be a witness um, in a court case if you were white. And yeah. so there's this crazy California district law that's talking about if you're Indian or if you're black, then you can't be a part of, you can't be a witness. You can't stand as a witness. So this went all the way to the Supreme Court. And then the Supreme Court issued this really long decision, which sort of like set the law on what race was starting in the 1850s. And they basically said that 
um, Chinese immigrants technically are Indian and they use this cockamamie, like really disgusting use of, you know, history and geography to try to explain why that's the case. And then also that anybody who's not white is black. And so this kind of like sets the precedent for, you know, how race is perceived since then. And I guess the reason this comes to mind is because there's so much embodiment in that, of course, in the sense that she says that all of these structural and legal things, um, rely on, she says, rely on perceiving the embodiment of race, right? So it's like the way that people in power are perceiving the embodiment of race. And yet at the same time, there's a certain way in which we can't lose that legality or the, the effects of law when thinking about embodiment. And so I guess um, I'm not suggesting that she's doing that, but yeah, I, I can say, is there a place in the text where that, where she's doing that? I think because of the, uh, the, the strong emphasis on embodiment, um, I think my, just my one thing is not to go so far into embodiment that we also kind of go in the other direction and, and fail to see how some of those structural things. Yeah. Well, um, I can, I, I want to jump because I think that you're right. Uh, and I got this impression, um, in the final chapter, uh, where I actually wrote to myself that it felt like there was a solid, this was a solipsistic account of transcendence. Um, and this notion, and, and it reminded me of a Levinas quote that philosophy is in, uh, is in, those, I know. It's never happened before. Uh, who, who would have thought that I would bring up Levinas, uh, that, that philosophy is ecology. And it always seems to be about egoism. And this is a, this is a particular case where we're talking about embodiment and, and, you know, spatialized, you know, or, or, or body space or body, uh, space is perceived, uh, space is perceived by the body, et cetera. Where in the text are you looking at this? Piece? Oh, um, this is in the very last chapter uh, where Lee, yeah, Emily is discuss uh, Emily uh, Lee is discussing. Let me see. Um, uh, let's see. It's the responsibility for a situation on the one hand. What page? And that's on page two forty two. Uh, moving through, uh, let's see here. Great radio. I know this really is. Uh, <laughs> Hold on to your seats, listen. Here, here on 240, and I'm sorry. So it's on 240 and 241 uh, when they're talk when she's talking about experiencing the present, but also experiencing body movement as it is constructed within a moment and, you know, within a, you know, a, a fixed social unit. Um, and I believe that it's just off the top of my head. I'm just thinking of, she brings up a, a an element of where, for instance, she's uh, quoting Iris Young's piece about um, a girl throwing a baseball. It's like you throw like a girl. Oh, yeah. Focusing very much on the embodiment and, and, the, and the, the body's movement and how that's conceptualized. However, what it's missing in that sense is if you focus only on how the body is, is spatializing these norms, hmm. um, you're forgetting about how the context in which the social unit is codifying those norms of throwing like a girl and then how those are transmitted structurally elsewhere. So it's forgetting that, yes, localized practices are in many instances seen um, in, you know, in, in a context, but are always influenced by some kind of external, you know, nodal point, a circuitry of, of norms that tell us what bodily movements are legible and not. And so in constructing bodies, for example, in the law, you know, you have judges who are actively engaged in a kind of an embodied subjectivity in themselves, white men, 
who construct race as through the lens of a kind of universal white male subject and thus say, you know, these are, you know, emanating from these ideas about what race must mean, i.e. what race must mean as different from, you know, being white and male. These are, you know, racialization, racialized bodies. Also, cisgender judges making claims about what gender and sex mean to trans legal subjects um, and whether those work for or against um, either racialized bodies or, you know, sexed and gendered bodies. Right, I want to dissent from here on a couple of different points. Yeah. Uh, the first is that, I mean, you're critiquing Merleau-Ponty, you're in phenomenology more broadly, right? Not necessarily what Lee is doing, because the way that she then mobilizes Merleau-Ponty in the rest of the chapter, I think, avoids the particular pitfalls that you're identifying. Well, no, she's falling into a sol- She's falling into a solipsism of what is the, 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 the section that you were describing is all her talking about Merleau-Ponty and then uh, Iris Marion Young. Yeah, so of course. She's, but where, you know, where then? Where is Lee doing that? Because I okay, see her as doing something different. Okay, so here we talk about okay, so in taking responsibility for um, for one's social location and the benefits of whiteness in a situation, I felt as though all I have here is the notion that one's situation. So, so it's uh, page two forty eight, right? Uh, whiteness studies position that one is responsible for one situation coheres well with Merlo Ponti's claim that one is truly free only in accepting responsibility for the entirety of one situation. Rising to the challenge of such is an important consequence of understanding that our body movements generate space and time. Only in recognizing responsibility for one's situations, even if one was not personally complicit in creating such context, can only truly recognize the broad scope of one's exist- um, existential power and ethical responsibility. To me, that, re- that reads as, as a kind of egoism. It's, not, it's, ta- it's taking one's account of one's social location. It's not a full explication of what an other might look like in this responsibility. And so if she's going to talk about Young and she's going to take Merleau-Ponty and use it in this really um, great way, I feel like it's a, sol- again, it's a solipsistic ethic. Yeah, I totally uh, disagree with you, like, yeah, 100%. I, I cannot read this as anything other than a self-centered orientation of, of ethics. Yeah, it, I totally disagree. Um, I think that... I mean, I totally disagree on a couple of points. I think that she actually does a nice job. I think that the problem that you identify is a problem that a number of different kinds of phenomenology can fall into. So I'll totally grant that. I think she avoids those kinds of traps that phenomenology can fall into because even in the part on Merleau-Ponty, I think she does a nice job of always bringing it back you know, to uh, the way that, for instance, um, she talks about you know the historical sedimentation that the way she talks about that it's a matter of you know the horizon and the social structural conditions that do condition the particular kinds of bodily movements and creation. Um, and then when she gets on later in the chapter, you know the point is not about the solipsistic subject. The point is that you know she's critiquing the the kind of you know as somewhat atomized individual of Kantian ethics. That's true. And saying that we can't go with an abstract individual, that we actually have to think about the individual who's always already situated (laughs) into this, you know, this is she, and I don't know if I would use the same language, but she talks about in terms of, you know, a social structural situation, you know, 246, for instance. Um, And I think that she's actually trying to do the exact opposite of what, 
you're saying she's doing. I think she's actually trying to say, given these, this historical sedimentation and its effects on the body, for instance, the way that white bodies get to move in, in space different than black bodies get to move in space, for instance, um, that she's actually doing a really nice job of using phenomenology to think about these broad, exactly kind of constructions um, and constitutions and materializations that are the opposite of solipsistic. And I actually think also going back to her, even in the introduction when she's talking about phenomenology and she's sort of highlighting the components that she's going to use. And she talks about this connection between the world. She talks about phenomenology as looking at the world as a relationship between the natural and the cultural. So in other words, subjectivity in the world condition each other. And I think that's also a way she's not sort of just getting lost in the embodiment of the subject, but kind of looking at that mutual constitution. And then she also says um, a bit later in the introduction, talking about Merleau-Ponty, um, that his idea of embodiment heeds not only the role of the body in general, but its particularities. Because of the differences of the body, each individual's position with the world facilitates a unique perspective of the world, which is sort of the solipsistic side, you could argue, although I think she's building to something. And then she says, the uniqueness of each position does not derive solely from its spatial position. Each body occupies a unique position in the world because each body builds up a horizon of imminent personal experiences. And the building up a horizon, it actually reminded me of Ahmed's affective economies mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. way things stick to you. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in that word, build up. Not to mention queer, her, Ahmed's queer phenomenology, which is just an amazing book. Well, good thing it just came in the mail. Um, <laughs> but builds up, I think, sort of implies it builds up because it sort of collects, you know, stigmata from the world and it kind of interacts with the world in that way. Although I do hear what B is saying in that her focus in the essays is on the subject, but not because the subject is central. Well, in other words, she, in other words, I think she does see like a chart with the world impacting the subject and the subject impacting the world, but she focuses attention a bit more on the subject because she's trying to highlight the the poten the uh, potentials of thinking embodiment in philosophy. Right. Well, so of course here she's creating a, a, a kind of ontology. She's fighting against, and there's a the reason why I'm bringing this up is that she's building an ethics that doesn't seem to have a, a you know quite an epistemological edge that I was hoping for. And of course maybe she's just dealing with you know a metaphysical account of what this might look like. And, you know, she goes into the history of colonialism, page 248, uh, very top. The history of colonialism has sedimented into racialized bodies or body movement to, uh, to generate phenomenal spaces and times that are also racially specific. As a result, today, body comportment and movement are racially specific, and one understands the intentions and, th and the significances of, of the body movement in racially specific ways. In the society, the sedimented scripts in the embodiment of white bodies and black bodies illustrate the depth of the racial benefits and disadvantages um, of the present um, social situations. Now, this might go back to an, a previous comment that we made you know, towards the beginning of, of the podcast, is that I felt like what was missing was something much more in-depth, is that what John... I think what you're doing is a reparative reading here of 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 of, of perhaps like giving of of what she's attempting to do, but unfortunately not doing it in a way that is convincing enough to move me away from from something that is a kind of self-centered account of what a subject looks like in relation to uh, an other that is not fully accounted You're for. You're asking for a book, B. This is one 18-page chapter in an edited volume. 
I get it, but I feel like she spent more time discussing Kant and using Kant as a foil than moving into something that was more original. Like, I think that, of course, if she's situating herself within the philosophical framework, I understand you're dealing with a lot of, you know, analytic assholes out there. So you're going to have right? you're going to have to move in that direction. Sorry for all the analytical in the audience, but or listeners. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, spin- <laughs> I don't think that the quote unquote analytic assholes are listening to our podcast. I don't think, so. I think you're safe. After that. <laughs> but like spending so much time on that as a foil and then moving into something that I see as some that should have been expanded much more broadly. And I think and taking into account what the other looks like within this spatial spatiotemporal um, body ethics that she's building need it, i think it needed more elaboration it didn't convince me that this was moving beyond merely you know the subjective points of fre- or of reference that makes uh, the, makes the subject responsible for some other social context yeah I'm i felt like i'm not like there's no scaffolding there that that was that was adequate enough all right let me quote from Lee's chapter so this is page 244 okay As such, the ethical decision-making moment is not isolatable from its context. Rather, moments of ethical decision-making, moments of exercising freedom, demand an acknowledgement of the importance of the circumstances within which human beings started their lives and their history of choices. This position refutes Kant's first two criteria. The moments of ethical decision-making cannot be isolated from their context. And if we were to go further down... In distinction from Kant, Merleau-Ponty broadens our ethical responsibilities to include one's situatedness. And so, I'll, you know, as sure she doesn't have a Levinas-like treatise on the other within these 19 pages of text, but remember that she's asking, you know, the particular point she ends up wanting to make is a point about, you know, critiquing the way that affirmative action gets discussed badly, right? So she's making this philosophical argument to mobilize it against the, you know, I would say would kind of, you know, I claim that I would strongly disagree with that, you know, solely because, you know, I didn't personally, I'm not personally involved in slavery, for instance, then why should affirmative action take place now when it could potentially negatively affect me? And she wants to make the point that no, our ethical responsibility to ourselves, to others, and to space and time and historicity is such that I do bear some, or or I have some ethical obligation to take responsibility for those that historical situation that I did not personally participate in. Yes. And I, and that's something that's historically relevant. And as a result of, you know, uh, multiple bodies through time, constructing these spaces that constrict certain kinds of activities for otherwise non-normative bodies. And I can see that, but you know what it feels like, and I hate to say the following words because I've heard it so many times in philosophy classes and I never really liked it is that the oh. words, uh, the word situatedness and social location seem to be doing more work for her than I think what her argument ultimately is doing is that I feel like what she is establishing is again, and maybe this is again a, a the project for a book. Uh, it seems that she gives us these these uh, elevator words um, to use a phrase from Ian Hacking. Um, but then walks away from it, um, having us, you know, do the work that those, you know, those words seem to be generating. Because honestly, I see, I see more coming out. Like I see a generative discussion from you 
uh, more than I saw anything really generative within the chapter itself. But I think this actually goes back to John's point about it's all about audience. I mean, her audience isn't affect theorists or even critical theorists or social theorists. It really is kind of debunking this idea that, you know, if that the body is the work of the, the, the body belongs in the household and the mind belongs in the polis. Like, I think that's what she's trying to get away from is the idea that, you know, philosophy is the realm of ration and of, um, of, you know, kind of ordered logical thinking and the metaphysical. And I think that's really what her audience is. And I think also the idea that, um, she, she, she echoes throughout this idea of the particular and the general as it relates to race. And she uses that Beethoven, and there's that Beethoven. Actually, no, that's not in her chapter. I'm sorry. That's in the the Marcano chapter, right? And I think what she's doing is setting up the book and also leaving it to other people to talk about. And Marcano, I think, does that quite well in talking about the particular and the general and the idea of the person she talks about, that college student, Fred, who cannot seem to see that, she cannot seem to get away of the particularity of race when he finds out that Beethoven is part black, has black ancestors. And so she's talking about how he can't universalize genius, right? He's just, he can't get out of the particularity of race. And at the same time that if we're only universalizing, right, that we're um, not being embodied enough. And I think in there, you actually see the opposite of sort of a solipsistic ethic. You see um, the work of trying to moderate between the subject and object and what is created in the world and how that impacts the making of the subject and the subject specific perceptions of the world, which are obviously particular. And and so the Mercano piece, I think, is interesting in that sense, because here on page 76, and that's where I think, you know, it's, it's not solid system. Um, whereas I found Lee's to be, you know, subject-oriented. Uh, it says, indeed, it is my belief that philosophy has lagged behind in addressing its racist, sexist, and classist history, despite its lofty aims of truth, ethical values, transformation, progress, freedom, universality, enlightenment. More importantly, we should continue to question the nature of philosophy as we've known it, um, such that it continues to write its, its exclusions of some social locations as qualifiers rather than others. It's the same chapter in which she's quoting uh, Genevieve Lloyd and you know the Man of Reason, etc. And you know, and and the construction of of black women's bodies and minds. And I think I, I think this chapter does a much better job of situating a kind of uh, a not again. I, I've used this word about fifteen times now, so I'm going to get sick of it. Uh, but a kind of non-solipsistic account of what's happening. You know, if if it's in the sense that we're situ- resituating philosophy, I think this chapter does a much better job than say the conclusion um, to the to the um, anthology. Uh, it's which, not the conclusion to the anthology. Where, 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 chapter, yeah. There's at least one or two more chapters after it that we didn't uh, read. It's building. We're looking at two blocks basically. Yeah. Somewhat arbitrarily and artificially. I have a broader question, though, which relate. You talked about elevator terms or something, and I've actually never heard that. Uh, I'm not sure what it means, but the terminology reminded me actually of the irony of um, of phenomenology and the vocabulary therein, and embodiment and the vocabulary therein, and the the jargon which every subfield and field is guilty of, of course. But the idea that it's supposed to bring us closer to particularity and specificity, not in place of universality, but to sort of like see universality through particularity to some extent, and materiality more broadly. You know, it's supposed to let us understand the visceral lived realities of people. And yet 
the language, and this is more a broader question for maybe our podcast or theory or philosophy, is not necessarily, I mean, is very kind of elusive and abstract. So it's, a, it's this is actually a broader question I want to pose, both for the podcast and in general for theory, is that if we're emphasizing particularity and difference and materiality, and yet we're talking about it in terms that are very, very specifically jargonable to our subfield, how do those two reconcile each other? And I don't have an answer, but I think it's important to talk about. Well, John, you want to? I feel like I was taking... <laughs> John, you want to take that one? Wow. I, I was talk taking up a lot of space. not taking so. responsibility for a situation. What? <laughs> I feel tension. I, I feel cyber tension. <laughs> I'd like to chime in before I do, because I feel like I was taking up a lot of space in the last, like, five minutes. So. No, I mean, like, I, I think, you know, that that's kind of a constant struggle, right? Because on the one hand, I think Rachel's exactly right. And on the other hand, you know, a lot of, you know, this is, uh, I mean, this is a long-running debate. And, you know, Butler has that famous piece where after she won the Bad Writing Award, you know, short piece in the New York Times where she's like, you just totally miss, are missing the point. Um, which is in a, I think, very smart way, but I mean, you know, this is one. This is one of perhaps the hardest tensions in something like critical theory writ broadly. Yeah. Is that one at the same time is trying to, you know, while they want, you know, one may want to reach out and, you know, and have language that's more accessible or accessible is not the word I'm looking for, but let's go with that. Um, but on the other hand. It's kind of the also the everyday languages and the way that language structures thought and action and feeling that one is working against at the same time. And I think the tension between those two is a big challenge. Yeah, I agree, uh, especially when we're using terms like subjectivity, right? Um, you know, and of course, epistemology and ontology and metaphysics um, and these big, you know, very large and those, you know, uh, in hacking to find an elevator term or elevator word is anything that seems to, to you know detract from an immediate discussion of of the now and rather hmm. brings the discussion up to an abstract discursive level. So things like words like truth is an elevator word for him, or knowledge is an elevator word because then we have to question truth would be or what knowledge is, etc. Um, but you know it, when we're dealing with something uh, you know as difficult as is race real? Central question in, you know, in the philosophy. Is gender real or sex real? We're defining, well, what, what do we mean by real? And so we have to break these things down. And, and, and I think that it, it, it relates a lot to, the, especially in the use of jargon, it relates a lot to how much thinking and overthinking we oftentimes do. And in, in order to not overthink, we have to have a term that can at least be drawn on um, to, you know, to su at least on some le level summarize uh, a set or a constellation of, of, um, of interrelated things. So if we say ontology, yeah, it's a really fancy in its own right elevator word, but it does have a specific referent. I mean, at least it's, it's, ref it's referring to something there. Um, I guess know, to me what's most interesting about this project is and it's also what do you mean by this project, this book, this text. Good or? question. What do I mean? I use an elevator term. I <laughs> say this project. This project. Um, I guess I suppose what I mean is um, Lee's points sure. and Marcano's points because we're only reading part of this book. Mm -hmm. But um, I like the idea. I mean, ultimately, I think the sort of justice question she's getting at is which one? Lee okay. is um, this idea of 
what does ontology do? It lets us unmake race in a way. It lets us unmake race in the way that race is sort of presumed to be some natural biological thing. I think that's like one of the projects. And I think the thing about that that's useful is it is applicable to the world. And I'm just thinking, you know, Ferguson right now, like the the decision on whether Wilson's going to be indicted or not. I mean, that news is coming out today, right? Mm -hmm. And the 12 citizen jurists are deciding that today. And so I'm just thinking like, what, like, I guess my question, I guess it's more of a question. What in Lee's piece, I mean, we've critiqued her, but what in Lee's piece do we find most useful for thinking about like real material things going on in the world right now? Like the fact that Darren Wilson might get off innocent. Well, I mean, like, I think it's, and this is why, again, I want to disagree with what the argument we were having earlier, right? That, you know, Michael Brown's body movements at the moment when she was shot by Darren Wilson, right, have a totally different meaning because of his yeah. embodiment, right, than if you were or you or I or any of us were to make the same body hand arm motions, right? Yes. So and the I, space I that's generated, right, and at the same time, and this is where I think Lee gets us to, right, mm -hmm. at the same time, the three of us in our whiteness in some form have some sort of responsibility, right, for the forms of historical sedimentation and circulation and um, constitutions that are at work in constructing that particular, you know, reading of body movements. Yeah, That's like, where I once, think Lee gets us. Yes. It, if and only if she develops a certain kind of, uh, you know, an, an epi epistemological edge of what uh, it looks like to move forward with this knowledge that historically, you know, constructed bodily movements through time and space are such that racialized bodies are more constricted and more prone to violence and more likely to die um, more likely to live in precarity um, and develop then from that. And I would love to see a much more developed, uh, you know, um, I, you know, idea here where I, you know, cause I can already see this because it's something with which I can already agree is that the responsibility that we have to one another, um, I think goes, a, I do, I do think it goes beyond phenomenology. Um, and I think that those, those kind of ethical accounts come from a certain kind of um, epistemic responsibility for thinking what it must be like to live subjective embodied lives. And so that's why I, I was don't just, understand what you're saying. So when I say, uh, you know, the philosopher's body, for example, okay. uh, in, in a, uh, a piece, I believe it was Lorraine code that says taking subjectivity seriously, um, in philosophy is to think through how someone's, um, you know, embodied state produces ways of thinking, producing knowledge, it's, you know, and, and thus is epistemic. Um, and what that means ultimately for how we are to judge a situation. Um, and using that in conjunction with perhaps what Lee is saying about how bodies construct space through Merleau-Ponty's phenomenology. And linking those two things, you know, this idea of embodiment with epistemology and thinking through um, you know, in ethics, I, I suppose like, you know, I just recently took a class with Linda Alcoff, which is absolutely brilliant. It was on, you know, feminist epistemologies and, and new materialisms. And, and it hit on a blend of those things that I wish that maybe that's what I was hoping for is that I wish that there was a more of a blend there, which okay, of course, again, like, I think you're asking for something that is not yeah. this book's and, project, and, right? Right. right. And, 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 but, but here's the problem. I think that's leading you to 
unfairly critique what these texts are doing. Well, I'm not, I'm not critiquing it to the extent that it is, uh, I'm dismantling its importance. I'm critiquing it to the extent that it could potentially be read as falling into a kind of solipsism. Now, you can disagree with me on that. I think it also depends on what we ultimately see this text's end goal as. Is it just a philosophical project? Because if so, I agree with you. But if we're seeing it as a useful lens to see the world, then I think it's, I don't have the same criticism. In other words, if we're looking at it as philosophy for philosophy's sake, right? then like, sure, we can find holes or it's incomplete or it's not cohesive enough. Although I have to say, I'm also doubtful of any philosophical work exactly. that's too cohesive. I mean, right. I think, you know, that's not. See, but I, th there's a, I think there's a difference, though, in the ways that we talk about something like this that have different kinds of effects in a number of different registers, right? It's either, you know, this text may be solipsistic because it doesn't get enough into um, epistemology and ethics, or it can be one way we can mobilize this text further is to think it with Levinas or to think it with epistemology and ethics, right? And I think it's more useful to do the latter than the former. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think that's where I was hopefully, that's where I wanted to go is at least it was a, it's a way of taking this text and saying, okay, well, we can't read it in isolation. Let's read it in, you know, in a constellation of other kinds of texts that I think take us forward outside of, of sometimes this sort of rigid field of analytic philosophy, which I, in many sort instances... Sort of rigid. Well, okay, the rigid field of, of analytic philosophy that, that leaves us with only questions of, you know, of propositional logic and, and strict ontology. Um, and And I think that, you know, the only I, the, so the critique that I have of Lee wasn't to to just completely sap Lee of of or this chapter of, or sets of chapters of its importance, which I think you may have says, inadvertently done. Okay, well, inadvertently so. However, you might have read my statement, uh, which is up to you. How I was hopefully mobilizing it was to suggest that we need to incorporate a certain degree of um, of a of a kind of philosophy of the other in order to effectively mobilize some of the messages that Lee is rightfully making about how spaces are in fact constructed by bodies, but also constructed socially that is just as real, right? That is just so, you know, one of those questions that I had earlier on, which was, you know, the extent to which something that is socially constructed is real. Um, is it just as real as a body? Can we go back to, you know, you know, Judith Butler and saying the body is discursively compelled into its reality, right? Um, whereas it seems on, on to a certain level a kind of a priori existence to the body in terms of the way that Merleau-Ponty is, you know, Merleau-Ponty's phenomenology is, is used or even Husserl's um, phenomenology. Husserl. Husserl. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, you know, Heidegger, ugh. But I mean, so, <laughs> we know how you feel about Heidegger. Oh my So, but yeah, so it's not. I just had a I had a visceral reaction because I, you know, I suppose like I wanted to see more of a philosophizing of the other. I suppose that's what I really wanted to see. And and when I didn't see it, I acted like a, a bratty child, not getting you know his toy. Um, you know, so it's just that. It, 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 it did have a, my reaction was like, well, what about the other? Okay, we have a construction of whiteness and the responsibility that people who are white have within um, this discursive framework that creates, vitiates power on the part of other racialized and non-normative bodies. Um, but we need a, another account of how, you know, these 
the, this other can be pulled back in, given a sense of agency. But uh, is it? I don't, yeah, agency? I don't know that it's like the job of the person constructed is not the other, aka white people, to give agency though. So I guess it, you know, I don't know that that. I'm not suggesting that they ought to give agency. I'm suggesting a philosophy in which we say, uh, okay, well, how is it that we are allowing for our own philosophical frameworks? Right, not to you know, not to distance the other from you know its or their own ability to be agentially you know active, and so it just felt very. I think that she talks about there's a there's a place where I actually wrote down something about agency where I really thought it was quite there. Actually, talk amongst yourselves because I'm going to look for it. I mean, so Lee does want to say that actually that, I mean, and this is where I would dis disagree with her on the way she schematizes social construction for the purposes of her introduction. Right? She says that, although maybe not. So she says that some forms of social constructionism, right, may make agency impossible or near impossible. And that she actually thinks that phenomenology is a way to recover agency in a way that situates the body as, you know, social and biological, quote unquote, all in scare quotes. Um, and I like that in what she does. I mean, I, I mean you know, so there are a lot of pieces in this book where I similarly would like to see a lot more of in a different kind of projects. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there are, like, I mean, there's just so many interesting connections to make throughout all of these pieces. Um, you know, there are connections, you know, when we talk about responsibility for a situation, I think Beauvoir is really interesting. And in some ways, I think she does it better than Merleau-Ponty does. Yeah. Um, you know, like, I, I think that, you know, there's a lot of connections to make with Ahmed in a bunch of different places in this book. Always. Um, always. Always, yeah. always Ahmed. Always. Always already Ahmed. Always already Ahmed and Poir. You know, um, so, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, so if 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 we're to treat these texts as some of gener you know, as generative of how to connect with other kinds of, you know, more I, I don't know what, what I dare say more normatively oriented or prescriptive texts that are critiques yet provide us with more of an ability or more of a way of thinking through or outside of um, or thinking through a normative, you know, us. Maybe I don't know. I, but I mean, I, I, I think though that that's even in the text we discussed, right? So, like in Marcano's piece, one of kind of the ethical obligations that arises from her text, either implicitly or explicitly, is teach black women's thinking as philosophy, as intellectually significant uh, intellectual work, right? One of the obligations arriving from from Lee's piece is support affirmative action and argue that, you know, even though none of us were alive in the antebellum South or in the era of Jim Crow, we have responsibility as white people, right, for racism and racism sedimentation and racist policies. Like, I think there are specific ethical obligations that arise from the text we read for today. Yeah, I, I just want to make... I think also the point that, Mar I think, like, one thing that works really well in Marcano's piece is the whole discussion going back to the general and the particular, this idea of if you talk only about humanity and this kind of jargon mm -hmm. of humanity, right, it leads to this sort of colorblind race blindness. But if you sort of focus the opposite way only upon race to the no, to the way that the call the racist college student in the yeah. example she gives does then you deny humanity and so i think in that there's also the responsibility of um like in terms of how does it affect the material world like you know the idea of sort of like multicultural colorblindness and, sure. and, and not Absolutely. kind of letting that be a discourse that or, or that creates erasure
and that's the, the so I, I brought to a quote, you know, before I have to, to log off um, on page 69 in the Marcano piece. Way to slip that in there. I know. Uh, <laughs> uh, Additionally, I will question whether the position of returning to no race, no gender is the solution to confronting the history of neglect. Ultimately, I contend that we must see diverse philosophers in our midst who we do not merely perceive as the neutral palette for the accurate imitation of white philosophers clothed in black skin or female genitalia. Um, and, you know, I think that this, you know, this notion of putting, you know, placing back into our, you know, into our frameworks of thinking through or hopefully maybe what what she's attempting to do is not necessarily speaking to people who already think through these kinds of differences. And I think that we, um, or at least I'd like to think that we think through these kinds of differences and take a critical point of departure from, you know, historical, neutral, universal subjectivity, but saying to philosophers out there, you know, for fuck's sake, you know, we've been writing the same shit for however many years and you continuously erase um, race, gender, sex, and other kinds of cultural differences. Stop. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Rawls>. <laughs> Pointing straight to roll. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> um, all right. So, B, we know you need to go and enjoy your trip that you took time out of to chat with us. So. B, we didn't get to sing any songs today. Um, we didn't. So, do you want to pick a song and, and sing it? Why don't you pick one? Um, how about uh, a, a song that I sang with my uh, godson last night? Okay, great. <laughs> Okay, it goes something like this. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Anytime now, Rachel. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. I love you. Wait, am I your godson This now? is going to sound really <laughs> terrible over Skype. Uh, but yeah, so we sang that for about uh, 10 to 15 minutes at a restaurant and annoyed everyone around us, but we didn't care. Um, awesome. Thank you, B. We're, Rachel and I will answer advice questions without you. So okay. the advice askers are going to be, you know, slightly disappointed that they don't get your advice. Well, I, you know, I apologize. I also apologize if I came across as a little bit, uh, you know, punchy uh, this time. <laughs> uh, of course, I, I, I think that tends to be my ongoing shtick in um, each of our conversations. So. <laughs> I wonder who of us is Paula Abdul, who of us is Simon. <laughs> And who, B is obviously Simon, right? There's like so, no question yeah. about this. And then you and I can talk about who was. Maybe that's one of our advice questions we need to answer. Okay, oh, cool. Well, I miss you guys already. Miss and you, you too. I like your selfie. Oh, thank you. And I will be sending pictures of my godson. And to our, you know, listeners, thanks for tuning in yet again. All right, bye, B. Bye. Love you. Love ya. We're back with my favorite segment of everybody, my Tumblr friend from Canada, except we're sad because B is not here any longer. And we're not actually in Canada. Yeah. That's okay. Our Tumblr friends, some of our Tumblr friends that have written us in are from Canada. That's right. But our first question comes from M in California. So M writes, I'm in a conundrum about funding for next year, which will hopefully be the last year of my PhD. 
I have been teaching at the same campus for a while, for the past few years, and now I'm applying for fellowships to hopefully not have to teach or work and just be able to write my dissertation next year. The problem is that I was asked by my university if I want to teach it all next year. So should I tell them yes, and in the case that I get funding, just back out and mm. potentially burn some bridges? Or should I be honest about the situation with them now? Or should I just not well, try to teach in next year? Interesting. What do you think, Rachel? Hmm. I guess I have a couple different thoughts. Well, there's the, the scheduling question. Should should he teach next year or she teach next year? And then there's also the thing of um, the ethical question. Sure. So I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure where this person is in their dissertation, but does it say? They said they almost say, done. Almost They're hoping done. to finish next year. So in that case, I would say... Um, I'm sorry, I just looked up and saw that um, Adorno's jargon of authenticity is there, and I think that's really interesting because we were just talking about jargon and authenticity. <laughs> Adorno is so on point all the time. Just saying. Okay, so um, back to M. I think that if possible, don't don't teach next year. If you already have some years of teaching under your belt, and that will help your job application portfolio, presumably. And you really need that time to just kind of really finish up what That's you're interesting, because I read the question differently, and that is that if this person doesn't get funding, teaching is their way they're going to, like, make ends meet Oh, because I thought... How I, that's how I read the question, but oh, I could have been Oh, because they read it. I thought you said at the end, should and should I teach next year? Oh, oh, well, then maybe they confused us. Well, anyway, my reading of M's question was that M needs to, is hoping to get a fellowship next year, but might have to teach, right? And they have to get put on the schedule now right. if that's what they're going to do. So, so let me run my a potential strategy. Okay. And you can tell me, Rachel, what you think. So one potential strategy is just get on the schedule now if you can, say you want to teach, and presumably, right, if it's funding for what, that would be the 2015-16 academic year, like, you'll presumably know in the spring if you're getting this funding or not. Yeah. And so if you get funding in, like, April, you know, 2015, they'll have enough time to fill someone. And if you say you've been teaching here long enough, then hopefully you have a strong enough relationship built up that you can say, look, I got this fellowship funding. I'm really excited about it. It's going to give me a better chance to, you know, be on the job market or to finish my dissertation or whatever. You know, I'm really sorry, but I, I'm not going to be able to teach these courses. And I think you should then say, I'll help you find other people to pick up the courses. Totally. Does that seem like a reasonable and ethical response to this? That's exactly situation? what I was going to suggest. I think that there's people, as we see in our own department, all the time on lift serves is totally. like, you know, ah, in two weeks we need an adjunct for this and this and this, and it fills up really fast yeah. for better or worse. And like, I mean, that's somewhat a specific condition of us being at CUNY, but like right. this person in California, right, maybe they're, you know, in one of the places where there are kind of a number of campuses in the mm -hmm. same general area. Hopefully. Yeah. I think, you know, the closer you get to the date, then it becomes more of an ethical question. Sure. But if it's more than a semester away, which April to September is, yeah. I think that that's fine because they put people on the schedule in a lot of places, you know, up until a few weeks before, and that's right. nowhere near that. So, I think as long as it's early enough that it's not putting anybody out, that's totally ethical. Great. And M, good luck on the funding. Good luck, M. All right. What's the next question? Okay, people? John. My actually, my next question is from me. Okay. In Canada, you know, maybe in terms of you know, metaphorically. Sure. But in New York, materially, if somebody ran up to you and held a gun against your head and said, choose one or I'll shoot you, mind <laughs> or matter, which one would you say? Wow, that went places that I wasn't expecting it to. Basically, if you were on a game show and you couldn't say pass, okay. would you choose matter? Matter. 
obviously, because, and here's where I get out of the whole conundrum in the first place, because matter also implicates mind, and they're not actually dualist. It implicates, but is it one and the same? No, that's a hard question. I feel like this is not in my Tumblr friend from Canada question. I'm trying result. to I'm trying to ask the uh, assholeish questions over here, John. <laughs> okay. Descartes for life. What's What's your answer, Rachel? I matter. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, matter. I guess I I would try to weasel my way out of it in the same way you just did, which is like, well, matter is so imbricated Im- in or implicated in mind <laughs> that you know matter we're such academics it's the worst it's the worst amazing Uh, Uh, this does raise the important advice question though of um what sort of theory advice show should or game show should we start Hmm. that's up for you so if you have advice to give us about a game show Maybe you want us to turn one of our episodes into a game show. We don't know. We don't know. So send us in. Or send maybe we should do like, you know, a little trivia thing if uh, if our well of questions from Canada run dry. Seriously. So that's ideas for the future. Give us other ideas for the future. Send us advice questions. Because, you know, everybody's listening live all the time. So people will be able to call in yeah, and give answers it's great. to the game I can't, show. It's going to work perfectly. It's going to be great. Um, so we only had M from California's question and Rachel's question uh, today. So send us in Guess some more questions to answer. And uh, Where do we text send them you'd to? like us to discuss. Thank you for asking, Rachel. Always already podcast at gmail.com. And you should go to our website website or it's already podcast.wordpress.com uh is this recording even though that's in there yes late breaking update uh (laughs) b just texted us after having to get off the phone and get traveling hope i wasn't a monster with not one not two but three exclamation points to be one and we think b wanted you all to know that i'm a monster um Good Arrested Development reference. I don't know if he intended that or you intended it, but I intend it. It's also kind of a reference to zombie studies. It is. So, zombie studies, monsters, me, Rachel, and I. Well, some of those things will be back for the next episode. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for putting up with Skype. Smooches and us. Yes. Bye. For joining us for the Always Already podcast, which is created by Rachel Brown, B. Altman, and John McMahon. Visit our website, alwaysalreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us, text you'd like us to discuss, or advice questions to answer at alwaysalreadypodcast.gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on iTunes, and come back next time. Till then, bye. Should I do it since I'm in New Mexico? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Should I do it since I'm in New Mexico?